What would it take to arouse your life, to experience more connection, more pleasure, more realness, in and outside of the bedroom? I'm August McLaughlin, and this is Girl Boner Radio. Not long after Sex and the City, the book was published. I graduated from high school and moved to New York City. While my life was a bit more like Anne Hathaway's character in Devil Wears Prada than Sex and the City chic, the book and derivative hit TV show would impact my life in ways I wouldn't know until well after they released. Sex and the City is credited for bringing women talking with one another about relationships, love, sex, and even vibrators into the mainstream. I'm not sure you could experience young adulthood in the U.S. in recent decades without being influenced by Sex and the City, which is thanks, above all, to Candace Bushnell, who wrote the book that became the TV series and film, eight successive novels, and her latest release, Is There Still Sex in the City?, which I had the complete joy of reading and discussing with her recently. Please enjoy my conversation with the legendary, incomparable Candace Bushnell, plus an Ask Dr. Megan segment on fears around menopause. Candace, I'm so honored to have you here today. Thank you for joining me. I'm I'm thrilled to be here. So I know you grew up in Connecticut. Uh, Do you remember when you actually wanted to become a writer? I do, and I'm one of those people who I had an epiphany moment when I was eight years old. I think I was probably reading Little House on the Prairie, Um, but I had this moment that was like, you know, angels from heaven or whatever, and I, I was just like, I'm going to be a famous novelist. Really? So that was really... Yeah, I mean, it was really very compelling. And a lot of people probably have those moments, but they don't pursue them. But I did. Yeah, that's incredible. Because I know you were writing professionally in your in your teens, right? By like your late teens? Mm, like when I was 19. 19, okay. And then your Sex in the City column started in 1994, and it ran in the New York Observer for two years. Do you remember how that came about? Did you pitch it? Was it something you'd been working toward? Yes, it was. It was, you know, sometimes I think back on it and I think, and, you know, I often tell the story like, oh, it just happened. And, you know, people sort of assume that, you know, you're a writer, you're a, quote, attractive woman, um, you know, and something magical happened to you that, you know, you may or may not have really worked for. But, you know, it's something that could happen to anybody is the idea. It really isn't. Um, It was something, having a column was something that I was probably working towards could be five years before I got that Sex in the City column. And, you know, I knew what I wanted the column to be, which was it was going to be about society and, you know, part of that was the mating and dating rituals. But I really saw it as being something that was like Dickens. And I had this idea. I wanted to write 
I wanted to write fiction and I wanted to get paid for it. And I had been developing this kind of writing that's journalistic fiction. It's about women. It's about relationships. It's about people. It's about society. Um, you know, for many years. And with Sex and the City, it really just, that's where it came together for me, all those elements. And I had had a couple of columns before that, and one was called The Human Cartoon. It was in Hamptons Magazine, and I think that was might have been 1990, 1991, maybe 1992. And then I had some other things, recurring stories in different publications. So uh, when I finally got the offer from The Observer to do this, I was ready to do it, and I knew what I needed to do. So it wasn't a random occurrence. It wasn't an overnight success or a fluke. I think people no. get that impression, as you, you're right about women in particular. Oh, something must have just landed on your plate. You were at a cocktail party and somebody discovered you and then you had a column. But you'd been working really hard toward this and and envisioned it, which yes. is probably really important. Yes, I had envisioned it. I mean, I had envisioned certainly... W- the kinds of things that I wanted to write, and I was writing them. So I I was really just working towards developing as a writer and developing, you know, my voice and who I was as a writer. And do you recall learning much about sex and sexuality growing up? I know at the time that you started this column, things were well, starting to you open know, the, culturally. You know, the thing that's interesting is, you know, the sex thing probably isn't a fluke either because you know even when I was very young I was always interested in I was interested in people's relationships I was interested in my friends relationships I was somebody who people would tell me all of their relationship troubles or whatever even at 12 and I made a study of it then when I was in college and I was always interested in sex but you know, in those days, you it wasn't like being interested in sex wasn't being interested in porn because there wasn't any porn. You know, my interest in sex didn't – it wasn't like a prurient interest that came from a porny kind of idea. It really came out of an interest in human beings and what we do and – how we do it, and sex is part of it. And, you know, it's really been my observation that people's sexuality is pretty much tied in with who they are, and we have this idea that we we should separate somebody's sexuality, especially with men, that we should separate their sexuality and their sexual behavior from you know, the rest of their personality and their life. But mm, no, it's 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 all connected. Yeah, it's such an intrinsic part of us and so natural, but there still is a lot of stigma around it. Your new book is wonderful. Is there Thank still you. sex in the city? Yeah, so can we talk about Tinder? Because I was really blown away um, and fascinated because I have never used Tinder because I have been in the same relationship 
for the course of before it started, I was in this relationship. And so I I dabbled with a little online dating, but that was it. And culture has changed so much around this. So I was reading it with deep curiosity. And uh, tell us what you, um, what you expected to learn when you started this experiential article research with Tinder. I, you know, I really didn't know. The fact is that I thought I knew... Because I'd heard things about Tinder, but I realized that, uh, you know, these were only things that I heard. And actually what made the piece interesting and what you do when you have on your journalistic cap and you do these kinds of pieces, you have to go in with an open mind. Everybody says it's bad. Maybe it's good. So that's it's that willingness to kind of challenge or ignore what other people have said, you know, in pursuit of trying to find some kind of reality. Um, And so I was surprised to find how a section of it, I know, I don't know if, you know, I mean, look, not every, people use Tinder in so many different ways. It depends so much on who who you are, you know, what your, you know, your feelings of self-worth and, uh, you know, how much of an outside life do you have outside of Tinder? What kind of person are you? Um, You know, that, that really will affect your experience on Tinder to some degree. But I was surprised by how dark it was. And how there was a really dark section of it, and it seemed really sad, and it felt like the thing about being on something like Tinder that isn't probably true about real life is when you go on something like Tinder, you can have one bad experience after another. You can have... 20 really bad experiences in a row and you can be like whoa I give up (laughs) and I've really thought a lot about it and the difference between dating online and analog dating where you know you could meet somebody in real life in person um Because you're so, we're so much better at picking people in person than we are on screen. You don't have 20 bad experiences in a row. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, like yeah. Because we naturally kind of people know how to figure out who they should be with if they are given the chance to feel it out, you know, mm-hmm. and to gain experiences and to gain knowledge. That's what it's really about. So online dating, you know, it doesn't initially give you that experience. So, but in, you know, in person, you know, I mean, I remember dating in the 80s and 90s. You'd have, like, even if you had blind dates, you know, oh, you know, you'd have a couple of blind dates. But people also had really good experiences as well that gave them hope and made them feel like, oh, this is a learning experience. This didn't go the way that I wanted it to exactly, but I can see 
what I'm looking for, and I can have goals. And that's can that can be a problem with online dating is the sequencing is somehow off. And so you do get people who, you know, women who have they feel like they've kind of tried everything and they've, you know, tried the online dating and they they just have one bad experience after another and then they just give up. And so to me, it seems like you know, what we're lacking is a, is an ability to have a certain kind of relationship that people seem to want to have that they don't seem to be able to have anymore. Mm, that's really interesting. I loved reading about, you were talking to, you called them the Tinderellas. Your... Yes, the Tinderellas, <laughs> the 20-somethings. Yeah. And, and they really, they lived this stuff, right? And you were... Yes, they lived it. And, and I... I mean, the react like one of the things that happens is that they get addicted, and you know, I got addicted like a little bit, you know, for I don't know, maybe it was like a couple days. You know, it's like people are saying, "Oh, I really like you," this and that, but you know what? I have enough a life experience to know it ain't true. <laughs> okay, I know if they yeah. meet me in person, it's like you're not gonna like me. I know it, dude. But, you know, so I have a lot of stuff that enables me to filter out, you know, or to be able to see through these things. But, you know, if you're young, you don't have a lot of experience. All of this stuff is is really magnified in your mind. And you do become, you know, addicted to that endorphin rush when somebody is interested in you. Yeah. Because that's like people's biggest fear now, I think, is that no one's interested. Mm, because we do because tend to so get much isolated. Is online, yeah, you know? yeah. You talked about being in restaurants and a bar and and that the guys weren't hitting on the women because right. they nobody's were not. doing that in person, which actually makes bar experiences sound more appealing to me <laughs> because I, you know, right. I, you think if you're, you just want to go and have fun and not be, you're Hassled. not looking for somebody. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So that was, that was really interesting. Um, and I know, and you talk about some people find love and people have wonderful experiences with these two, but I have to say my favorite story in, in the book of all your anecdotes was uh, in chapter four, a cautionary tale, always check a cub's credentials. I felt like I was entering into a thriller and oh. like almost it was going like Dateline. And, but then also, and I love thrillers, but then also I have um, some episodes that are quite popular with people about, you know, the red flags and look right. out for this. And that's really important to me too. So it spoke to me on multiple levels. If it, anyone doesn't want to hear about this story because they want to read it, um, no spoilers, then just skip ahead a couple of minutes. But could you share a little bit about what happened? Because I found that so fascinating. It was with... Uh, well, What's her name? yes, this character, Mia. Yes, Mia. Now, that is a story. I mean, the the thing about these stories is, you know, there's a piece of this of a story here, a piece of a story there. You know, they're like patterns, and then I make it into a story. So this is not something that happened to a real person. But elements of it happened in different ways to... Uh, people, you know, whatever. But anyway, it was about a woman who was very rich and 
and her husband left her, and it was an acrimonious divorce. And it's in the you know it's in all the newspapers, so everybody can see how much money she got in this divorce, which was like thirty million. And she was a wreck, and. I mean, everybody's like angry at her, and 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 so she was drinking, and she basically gets taken in by a younger guy, a cub, and there are. This is one of the. I think this is a new phenomenon. It's not new, but the fact that it happens with so much regularity is a new phenomenon, is the younger guys interested in older women. Yeah. And there's quite a lot of it for a lot of different reasons. Cubbing, right? Cubbing. Um, But anyway, this woman gets taken in by a cub... And then he knows she has all this money and he knows that, you know, and she's drinking too much because that's what you do mm-hmm. when you're really upset. Mm-hmm. And and so he tries to blackmail her and he says that he's underage. Oh, my heart almost stopped when I read that part because at first you don't know that. Yes, but it would be literally the yeah. worst thing that could ever I mean, I was really trying to think, like, what would be the worst thing? And then, uh, you know, your husband would find out. Your kids would find out. Yeah. Like, the woman had, she had, like, two daughters. And so it was really, like, the worst thing that could happen. I mean, it could be statutory rape. Like, it, there were so many, it brought up so many issues that, again, worst case scenario. It, but but it's, it was really well written, I thought. It just so... I, I, my heart was just like, bum, 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 bum. You know what? <laughs> Maybe great. I should make it into a thriller. Please do. And I then, but, but I don't know. Should she kill the guy? I don't know. But you know what? So many people have these horror stories. Like everybody yes. has some, right? Everybody has something. I think that would be really fascinating to hear everybody's. Because most people are good. It's kind of like riding. Um, do you use ride share at all? Like using Lyft, for example. I've had a right. lot of good experiences. And then I, I've had a lot of really bad ones. Really? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I had somebody. Um, well, the last time I rode Lyft, he was driving 80 miles per hour and seemed so agitated, was like clutching the wheel. And I was so scared because I'm in this locked metal box and you can't reason with someone who's not reasonable. So I didn't no. want to be like, excuse me, are you okay? Like, I, I didn't know what to do. I was just starting to panic because we're in the middle of like a six lane freeway in Los Angeles. Um, and then I, I've had people, <laughs> guys ask me like, oh, so where do you live? How long are you staying there? Like these questions that you start feeling, oh, and this one guy kissed my hand and just like these weird, weird things. Mm-hmm. And uh, <laughs> so it's one of those. Uh, but then I know people who are like, oh my gosh, I love Lyft. I've never had a problem. But but those those stories are important because I think there are lessons in them. Like in that story, you know, being more um, aware of things, knowing that most people are good, but some people might try to manipulate you mm-hmm. so that you can take care of yourself. Exactly. And then in the story, it turned out that the kid was lying. Yes, it worked out. 
it totally worked out, <laughs> which I was relieved for too. So I have some questions from some listeners and a couple of friends. Great. For you. Uh, this one's from Liz. She said, what is one view of yours about sex and dating that has significantly changed since the inception of Sex in the City? Gosh, that would be hard to answer. You know, I don't know if I, I, you know, that's kind of hard to answer because I'm trying to think of like, what are my views? I'm almost like maybe they should read the book because it brings up all the changes. Yes. You know what? I, yes, I think, I think. Yeah, I mean, that's really what the book is about. It's about how things have changed, you know, how they changed emotionally. And yeah. Like the dates are so different. When you were talking to Tinderellas about your dates that were so, they sounded like fairy tales. You know, that's the thing that's so, that's, that, okay, so that's something then i mean it's, i i don't it's not my view but i certainly will say that things have you know i've seen a lot of things change with dating and and one is is you know that those p- regular people going on those fantasy dates i don't think that happens anymore and you know at one time People put a lot, people did put effort into dates. People say part of it is the economy. Mm. Nobody has money. Which you'd have to be more creative, right? Like make a picnic or something. But I do think the numbers are a big piece of that. How you were saying you might have 20 interactions with 20 potential dates in two days on your app or whatever. And if you're going to be meeting them all, you kind of have to like, meet for five minutes <laughs> because see if you like them. And then after you are moving forward, maybe you would plan something more extensive, but it, maybe it feels un- impractical to people. They don't want to waste like all these plans on someone they don't actually know. Do you think? Um, yes. I don't, people don't, I don't think they usually see 20 people in one day. Although I think someone would, I think that might be speed dating. Yeah, um, but interacting. So, like, say you meet 20 people in a couple of days online, right. not in person. And then if you wanted to say, like, 10 of them were like, oh, these are these have potential. 10 dates, if you planned a lot for all of them, <laughs> might seem like a lot of, of effort. Yes. Time and, yeah. And money. Ex- yes, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. Well, you know, it, it also is true that I think it's, like, may, might be two-thirds or it might – it might be even bigger than that. It might be like 75% of the interactions online don't lead to people even meeting up, yeah. which is probably sensible. Probably, yeah. Because <laughs> again, time is an issue, but then also that's a lot of people. <laughs> um, Jean asked what you're most proud of as you survey your career. Well, I would have to say I'm probably most I'd say I'm probably most proud of not giving up. Um, I think what I'm most proud of is how I, you know, I do, I do keep trying to grow and stretch, mm. you know, as a writer. And I know somebody wants, you know, a specific 
book or, you know, a TV series or something like that. But it's not really about that because that stuff really is from the outside. I mean, it, it has to, you know, I think what I'm most proud of is my passion and dedication to my work. Mm. That's what I'm proud of. And, you know, answer. and not giving up mm -hmm. and, you know, just keep trying. Mm. That's beautiful. I'm guessing you've heard this one before from Rachel. Who is the real Mr. Big? Yay. I'd love that question. Because there was a real Mr. Big. The real Mr. Big, and actually you can Google it. Um, so it's, I don't feel like I'm betraying any confidences, but it was a man, he was the publisher of Vogue and he, I mean, I was crazy about him and I called him Mr. Big because he really was big man on campus. He had charisma. He knew everybody and also you know, he worked with Anna Winter and he worked with Tina Brown. You know, he knew like the most powerful, glamorous women, you know, in the fashion business. And he and he was really fun. Mm. Um, and I was crazy about him. And but you know, for some reason I also felt like maybe I wasn't quite good enough for him. But now when I look back on it, I wonder if he didn't feel that he wasn't good enough for me. Oh, you didn't get a chance to find out or ask. No, but you know what? He couldn't get there. He couldn't go there anyway. Yeah. But, and he, we are still friends. But when we broke up, I was really mad. And he married a woman who was an Olympic skier. But I told everybody in the press that she was a ski instructor. <laughs> did that feel therapeutic? <laughs> it did feel a little therapeutic, I have to say. And it's, it's, sort totally of like, valid. it's sort of embarrassing, but whatever. <laughs> I was angry because I was really crazy about him. Mm. And, um, but, I mean, he ended up moving to Vermont. And he's been living there for at least the last probably 20 years. And he has horses, and he rides horses. And sometimes I think, damn, I would be happy riding horses right now. <laughs> uh, but, yeah, so that was my Mr. Big, and we didn't end up together. Mm, thank you for but, sharing that. But you know what? It's fine. It's life, right? It's life. Yeah, it is. From Emily, how do you feel about sex and cannabis? It's mentioned in Sex and the City a few times. Any deeper personal opinions? Do it. <laughs> you recommend it. Yes, because, you know, it can really get you into the head. And sex is, you know, I've been thinking about this a, just a little bit lately because I saw this Lisa Ling story on porn and, and, and really, like, the negative effects of all of this relentless, relentless, relentless porn. And how then there's this movement towards, like, the real sex. Well, you know what? Nobody wants to watch people having real sex because it's freaking boring. Okay? <laughs> I mean, real sex 
is about communication. It's a lot more like a massage. Mm. Honestly, it's touching. People who are good at sex, it's it is about that ability to like read somebody's body and know what they like. I mean, it's like if you don't know how to pet your dog, you're going to be bad at sex. I've never you know heard that what before, I'm but yes, you're right. But, I mean, sex is ultimately, <laughs> yeah. ab- it's about touching. Yeah. And people forget this. Mm. And because then when I, you know, they had this clip of like the real sex, people having the real sex. And it's like, you know, they're all like, mm, they're stroking, they're touching. No one's like, hey, uh, uh, uh. <laughs> and it's not very interesting. <laughs> so that but but I think you know we need more of that yeah you bring up such good points and one is that because porn is designed to be entertainment toward a camera you can't be like the clit can't be being touched all the time because then it's covered and then so a lot of it is just you know it's it's kind of like a cooking show I feel you know how exactly. like they bring out this perfect meal exactly but they didn't make it right there like and it takes you know, time and the other thing that people don't realize is like I have interviewed porn stars in the past and you know if you're a porn star it's something that you do physically like you have. I mean, they. It, it, I. I mean, they. It's like you. It's demanding. It's demanding. I mean, it's physically demanding, but also it's like that's what they do with their bodies. So they take a particular kind of care of their bodies so that they can do these things. I mean, they are. These are not regular people out there who are sticking things up here and up there. I mean, this is something where they got a lot of practice. They got lube. I mean, it's more of a circus act, honestly. It's very acrobatic. It's acrobatic. Yeah. And it's more of a cir- cir- circus act than it is actual sex. Like porn de soleil or something. Yeah, I could see that. It, it, it does have a... Uh, because it's an exaggerated feel. It has to, right? For sure. And we have so much access to it. But we don't have comprehensive sex ed. So I know, I mean, I didn't have the internet when I was little. So when I had questions about sex, if I were like seven, eight years old, I would jump on the internet today and start Googling and probably land on some porn because there still is a lot mm-hmm. of secrecy. Like it's still, it's it's improved, but there still is a lot of um, stigma still and taboo around being but You know vocal. what's interesting is... Um, how it felt like at one point things were really going in the right direction and that felt like in the early 80s there was a lot of talk of sex and you know because of like that 70, 70s feminism which really was disseminated to a large audience of women through women's magazines you know it was women's magazines that were writing about female empowerment and you know signs to look out for if you're in an abusive relationship i mean think about that and but also spoke f- you know freely or much more freely about sex and in those days there was a huge huge focus on the female orgasm and there was a lot of discussion about um, 
you know, sexual techniques. And in some ways, the, uh, you know, the nuts and bolts of sex, but also like uh, really how to increase your partner's pleasure and that sort of thing. But again, not from a porn, you know, this is power dominant, you know, perspective. And and it seems like women were really making progress then um, because it was about female pleasure. And somewhere in the last 20 years, it's just become uh, the opposite has happened. And it seems like there nobody cares about female pleasure. It has shifted, I think. I will say that in the 90s, which is when I was a teenager, I, I didn't know what a clitoris was. It, we weren't mm-hmm. taught that. Um, but again, in the 90s, too, by then, um, the AIDS but you epidemic know what? In had the, come up. In and, the early 80s, everybody yeah. knew what a clitoris was. See, I totally, like, the timing just didn't work out for me. Yeah. I mean, I, I would discover on my own. But I remember being in a college class and, and actually hearing it and going, oh, my gosh. Like, why didn't I? Why didn't I know that? So it did. It, the pendulum, like, swung, Oh, right? but that was your age, though. Right. I yeah. mean, you know, when I was that, when I was well, I went to college when I was like 17. And so I took, you know, a human sexuality class. So, I mean, it wasn't like, oh, the first time I'd heard about it. But that's the age when you learn, like, no matter what era it is. Yeah. You know, if you said, oh, I didn't know about a clitoris until I was 30, I would be like, mm, sweetie, something's wrong. <laughs> yeah. But that's the age when you should learn about it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I agree with that for sure. I would love for us to learn just like basic age appropriate sex ed yes from early on you know as soon as we have questions we should get answers not like shh that's naughty (laughs) which i think still happens really oh totally yeah yeah i you know i don't know yeah because i don't have kids it depends on where you grew up to i grew up in minnesota and yeah so it's different depending on the city the region the if you're in a religious family you know all those things but i do think the internet has helped in that regard because people can find stuff but you find good and you find not helpful <laughs> information. Sex in the City has really been credited for bringing so much um, women talking about sex out into the mainstream and into the open. How did people react early on to to that? Well, it was it wasn't just women talking about sex. It was women talking about relationships and men and kind of daring to say, I want something better Mm. than being treated, eh? And that made a lot of men angry. And I remember when the show first came out going, I guess I went to London in 2000 and just really being confronted by all of these guys because it, uh, Sex in the City was just starting to catch on there. And uh, just being confronted by all these angry men who were like, you're ruining it for men. You're showing women the truth. You're ruining it for us guys. We had, you know, we had it all figured out. So that was one of the reactions that was interesting was like, you know, allowing, you know, this idea of women getting together and talking about these things. Well, that's how the truth comes out. I mean, it is really 
one of the ways that I think it's like one of the reasons why we as women haven't done anything about so many things for so very long. The culture works to isolate women from one another. Mm, yeah, that's really true. I still occasionally hear comments like what you just described. Uh, it could because there are these like men's rights groups, which are probably like right. the backlash to that when when people do, when women do start talking. You know, I mean, interestingly, I mean, I come across some of these guys on Twitter. I don't know if they're men's rights, but they do have, you know, they do have this idea about you know relationships and where women fit in and like the macho guy and what women's roles are and and <sighs> we know what to say about that yeah it's but it's and it's sad. but it's also it's interesting and you know I always read it and I try to you know, try to figure out like where, you know, where they're coming from and that sort of thing. Right. We have to, I think. I think in some ways having compassion around, or I try to anyway, that sometimes people are coming from such a deep place of, you know, it's it's misogyny that's that's negatively affected guys too. You know, that if they believe that, that's horrible. Like what did they grow up learning? Um, I know that there are exceptions and some people are just not cool. Well, I mean, <laughs> I, think men there, I think men generally grow up learning to disrespect women mm. and you know part of that is how you know we as women are presented you know we're presented to men basically as something that can be bought still objectified and yeah. objectified it happens and, but, a lot. but more importantly something that can be bought mm. yeah and sex becomes a currency which is always dangerous unless you're a sex worker you know, then that's supposed to be a currency. But yeah, absolutely. One thing that's really beautiful in your your book, your latest book, is the way you talk about the kindness in the middle-aged men, that there is this lovely warmth that, that seemed to be coming through. Yes. And, you know, part of that is everybody loses hormones in middle age, including men. I'm, you know, I got it. And the reality is that in some ways, the two sexes, I mean, if you don't really work at like looking like a man or work at looking like a woman, you will start to, the men become more feminine and women become kind of more masculine in mm. a way. And there's a blending. And, and, you know, as the men lose the testosterone, they become softer. They become it like it opens their eyes in a way to they 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 can kind of see other people's point of view and they can be a little bit more generous and not so egotistical. That's a that's a positive uh, change. That's that's good that that's something that you've experienced that you have found more more kindness and more openness and um, because I know a lot of really you know really great guys and and I do know people I actually have some female friends who they always want to date older guys because they have found them to be kinder and to be okay well that's that's interesting because you know middle-aged women ain't so pleased about all the young women trying to take these quote older guys Uh, but I mean that's is you know that's always that's a a big issue in Mm in midlife dating is 
that the availability. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I, I you know even guys who aren't that great in their fifties, they have a lot of. They all tell me they have so many women in their thirties that are after them, even the twenty, even their twenties. And how prevalent is the cubbing in your experience? Where the oh, it happens a lot. I mean, looking. I could pretty much if I wanted to get a cub, I it would take me about. 30 minutes really yeah yeah i mean i could go and find a cub in person online either in person yeah <laughs> i'm not gonna waste 30 minutes online <laughs> honey i'm gonna go and walk around my hotel room hotel and i will find somebody i promise you yeah but um um i, I it's one of it's it's I mean, I am surprised how many women have had this experience. I mean, I'm still like, I, you know, I'm still like, I don't quite believe it myself, I'm telling you. Mm. Uh, you know, I'm still like, really? I mean, a couple of weeks ago, I went to a bookstore and there was a guy there and he was tall, like six six, And he was really really attractive and he was like 28 and he or maybe he was 30 and he was like really flirting with me like like that I will have sex with you flirting and I was like is this really so it still seems very surreal it seems yeah. it still seems it's flattering but it also still seems strange mm. I think it's really cool I mean do you find it like it's a does it feel good to just feel because to me it feels like it it's a cool thing if they are attracted to somebody who knows who they are and has yes. confidence and you know. Yes, I think that is a cool thing. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Um what is your best uh, recommendations or, or advice to young creatives who are trying to build their own creative dreams whether they they are writers or they are filmmakers or they are dancers? Um, what what would you advise young people coming up today in the in the arts? Just do it and do it all the time. Mm. You know, make it your life. Yeah, go for it. I you know, the reality about a creative career is that you do. It's difficult because you do have to make assessments as to I mean, to, you know, there are two different kinds of creative careers. There's one where you're going to make a living at it. And there's another one where it's your dream, you'll never give it up, this and that. And those are actually two very different things. So, I mean, to me, I would not, I mean, I, I didn't make money being a writer for a long time, but I did make enough to scrape by. And, you know, eventually it paid off. But... You know, these careers can be careers with like a long apprenticeship and and you know, maybe not a big pay reward at the end. So you really I mean, you have to do it as a business. That's the reality. Yeah. And I think that's you know, the advice of like follow your dreams, it sounds really good and it sounds really inspirational, but if you really want to do it, you gotta get paid for it. Yes, I so agree. Yeah. And, and seeing it, treating it as a business. Yes. And I feel that 
women are often, I think, still, if you have a creative passion, it's considered a hobby. Right. Like and if you it, write, oh, that's cute. They, you must do it on the side kind of thing. Yes. Well, see, I mean, that's the that's the other side of the coin for women is that if you are a creative person, there's probably not going to be a lot of people encouraging you to pursue those things in a real way, the way that 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 males are encouraged. Like, oh, you want to be a movie director? Oh, my God, let's bow down and make way for our son who's going to be a movie director. Um, and parents do do that with their female children now, but it's traditionally been less. And it seems like if you're a woman, you have to work harder to convince people that you're serious at doing this creative thing. Yeah, I could relate to that for sure. And then just focusing on knowing that and keeping it in mind, I think can be really motivating because you want to prove people that not wrong, but you want to show that you can do this, you know, use it as fuel. I think that's really important. I have one more question from uh, a listener who said, how have you enjoyed or not the process of collaboration over the years as a writer moving between worlds of TV, film, and books? That's a hard question. Um, you know, the problem for me is that I am not a corporate person. And the reality is that TV is very, very, very corporate. And so are movies. And there is a creative aspect to it, but it's a, it's, there's a lot of money involved and there are a lot of opinions and there are like a lot of emails and, you know, I mean, for me personally, that like when I was younger, I could not work in an office building. I mean, I felt like I was going crazy. So there's a certain buzz level that I find is disturbing to me, like physically. Um, So that's always, that's one of the things that is hard for me. Yeah. But it's great, you know, to work with people. And it's also really fun because I spend so much time you know, working on my own that then when I come and then I'm working with people creatively, it's like, oh my God, this is so great because I don't, you know, none of my friends are creative. So I don't discuss anything creative with any of my friends. Oh, wow. You don't have like your writer friends that you I don't. That's interesting. Is it nice to have the contrast? Um... I don't, I don't know. I mean, I guess it's just, that's the way my life is. I kind of keep it separate. Like my, you know, my social life is, it's like, I mean, a couple of my friends are writers like Jay McInerney. Sure. But, you know, we don't talk about writing. Yeah. yeah. We talk about clothes. (laughs) We're super shallow. (laughs) Oh, goodness. It's been such a joy chatting with you today. Um, Could you share uh, what you love most about this? stage of your life? Well, you know, I feel pretty good. Um, I'm saying that like an old person, but I, <laughs> I kind of am an old person. 
it, you know, it does feel like it does feel like a, another chapter in the sense of it feels like you know now I've learned a lot and I know a lot. I'm sixty. I've been working professionally for forty one years, wow. and you feel like you. I mean, you do know what to do. The question is whether or not people are going to let you do it. That's what I am trying to find out. I'm like, get out of the way. I'm taking over. But nobody wants you to do that. Well, but I just I yell at people you, a lot. <laughs> That's your strategy to yell at people a lot. No, I can't help it. I just do. <laughs> well, it seems to be working out what you're doing. So uh, congratulations on your new book. Your many, many, many successes. Thank you for inspiring so many of us, me included. Oh, thank you. Tell people where they can learn more about you and follow along. Uh, well, I say go on Instagram. I, you know, I just always, I really like Instagram. I, I love making the little movies. It's fun. It's, you know. Yeah, it, uh, it's like brighter than the other platforms. I feel like it's more optimistic. <laughs> yes. Yeah. It's a good place to go when the world feels like too much, for sure. Thanks again. Thank you. Now for this week's listener question, which comes from Rachel, who wrote this. I'm 44, and my husband is 35. Our age difference has never felt like an issue until now, and seemingly only in my head, at least so far. I'm extremely nervous about menopause. I haven't noticed any signs just yet, except for a late period here and there. And although I work hard to resist ideas about older men staying sexy and women withering away, I'm worried that I'll suddenly have zero interest in sex, crazy mood swings, and that my vagina will dry up like the Sahara. I worry that my husband will see me as expired. If you know of any preventative measures that don't involve take this herb or avoid sugar and everything that tastes good, I'm all ears. Thank you for this question, Rachel. Here is what Dr. Megan Fleming of GreatLifeGreatSex.com had to say. Rachel, thanks so much for your question. And, you know, I often talk about the biggest sex organ is our mind. And it's interesting that you notice that you never really thought about the age difference until now and seemingly in your own head. And I'm willing to bet, in my experience, probably definitely more so in your head than in your partner's. Um, I think, again, it's not uncommon when people have almost a 10-year age difference, although there are many, many um, couples that have a 10-plus age difference, that women in particular, when they're older, begin to feel particularly more self-conscious about uh, aging and being attractive and sort of fear of losing their partner to a younger woman or just sort of expressing the fear as being expired. And so I want to bring you back to the root of what is most true, which is, you know, your husband isn't attracted to everyone. He was attracted to you. He loves you. He married you for exactly who you are. And in a sense, we all have the good, the bad, the ugly, um, the not so great sides of ourselves. Um, but that's what you, he loves you and chooses you. Now, when it comes to menopause, this isn't something that's going to sneak up on you suddenly. Um, the average age of onset is 51, and perimenopausal uh, symptoms can start 
even years before that. But the most important thing is it's the endocrine changes, it's the loss of estrogen. And that ultimately is what can, for many women, lead to uncomfortable sex because there's not as much lubrication. But there's so many treatment options. Like I want to say that menopause is not a bad word, you know, any more than we think about like the teenage years, you know, our mindset and how we think about it really can be getting in our own way. So I want you to know that, listen, some women slide through menopause barely noticing any symptoms. Others, yes, they do have more severe, but whether it's hot flashes or vaginal dryness, you're going to speak with your gynecologist. There's so many treatment options out there. Everything from hormone replacement therapy or bioidentical hormones, or even if you don't want to take something by mouth sort of systemic, um, which again is very low, very low dose, you could even do something topical estrogen then there's, of course, vaginal moisturizers, which are different than vaginal lubricants. I can assure you, you can, throughout your lifespan, have comfortable, enjoyable sex. And so really, it's about focusing on enjoying the sex and having sex worth, you know, having, having sex worth having, right? That it is in the passion, it's in the connection, it's in seeing sexy time as an opportunity for play and exploration and discovery. That's really where... Um, the sort of the heart of the matter is in terms of having a satisfying great sex life so recognize that menopause doesn't have to in any way significantly change your uh, sexual life or your relationship it's how you think about menopause and those symptoms i always come back to you know betty dotson she's 90 this year we consider the mother of masturbation mother of masturbation, she gave me the first positive view of menopause when she was just like, she's sort of also an artist, she's like, <gasps> she was just feeling the heat in her body and sort of describing how it was rising up in her chest. And it, it's sort of like seeing when Harry met Sally and she's at the table and you're like, I want what she's having. She made me want a hot flash like that. Um, because again, it's how we interpret something. It can be a positive or negative and how you welcome the sensation versus the res resisting the sensation. And she sort of said, you know, when she was just really embracing it, it ended. So think that you have lots of options. Speak with your gynecologist and know that um, you can have a satisfying, enjoyable sex life throughout your lifespan. As always, love to hear how it goes. Thank you so much, Dr. Megan. I totally want to have hot flashes that she just described. That's the first time I've ever heard them spoken about in like a sexy, fun way, which is pretty cool. And I do have a blog post related to this topic, which I will put a link to in the show notes. And to Dr. Megan's point, number one on this list of five things you should know about sex and menopause is a section called Your Mindset Matters. And it includes some research that was published in JAMA Internal Medicine. They analyzed the sex lives and beliefs of 605 women age 40 to 65. And they found that women who valued sex as part of their lives were three times more likely to stay pleasurably sexually active throughout and beyond menopause than women who did not. So there there are a lot of really good things. There's also a section called something about your vagina will not shrivel up. So uh, lots to speak to specifically in that question. And I'm so glad that you asked. Thank you so much for listening, everyone. Uh, leave us a rating and review if you enjoyed the episode and be sure to sign up for occasional extras at girlboner.org or augustmclaughlin.com and have a beautiful Girl Boner Embracing Week. Girl Boner Radio is owned, operated, and executively produced by me, August McLaughlin, with technical producer and audio extraordinaire, Mackenzie Mazel, as part of the Period Podcast Network, an affiliate of Starburns Industries. 
Learn more about the Girl Boner podcast brand movement and book series at girlboner.org and more about Period at periodnetwork.com.